Welcome to the King's Cast, dynamic teaching recorded live at King's Church in Cambridge, England. We hope you are blessed and challenged by listening to the ministry today. And now, here's the broadcast. Please would you welcome, come on Tom, it's Tom Finnemar from St. Barnabas is here today. Good morning. It's great, to, it's great to be with you. Um, f- I want to start with some, some, um, some thank yous, really. So thank you, uh, thank you, thank King's Church. You, you've been very gracious to us. Um, if, if you know St. Bonas, we, we're just on Mill Road, and we have been, um, we started a building project at the end of March last year. And the plan was that it would be finished at the end of November. Um, well, it's now going to be finished at the end of March. So we've been out of our building for a whole year, and we are so grateful to you, um, to Peter and Jane, who, um, who kind of started the conversations, um, to Phil and to Emma for, for hosting us so graciously, and for the, the band for whom when we don't put back the, the, the wires in the right place, you're so, so gracious to us. Um, and um, we, are, we, are, we want to see, we long to see the things that, that you've seen. We long to see the miraculous on the streets. We, our heart's desire is to see this significant city one for Christ and for people to be set free, for, um, for people who are oppressed to be set free. Um, we're Anglicans, amen, but we're one in Christ, which is really, re- she's really reassuring. So it's a great honor to be here. Now, I want to say a special thank you to Phil because um, for, I, I'm from the West Midlands originally, a place called Warsaw, near Birmingham, if you, if you know that. I lived there for, for 19 years, uh, and I've lived in Yorkshire for eight years, uh, five years in Sheffield, and three years in Hull, <laughs> the more exotic places. And um, so it's, it was an absolute joy when I met Phil, and I, just, I heard this familiar warmth coming from him, and it was that lovely South Yorkshire accent that he has, and it reminded me of very, very blessed times I've had, particularly in Sheffield. And in Hull. So it's a great joy. When I, when I speak with Phil, it reminds me of um, up north, where you can say it as it is. So, Phil asked me to speak what was on my heart. So today I'm going to share a, a simple message. He said I could speak for an hour and a half. And I'm joking. I'm joking. It's a strange sense of humor that I have. I, I am joking for those of you looking slightly concerned. Um, so I'm going to speak on um, David and Goliath, which is a story which I'm sure f- is familiar to us. It's, um, it's typified most recently by a man called Malcolm Gladwell, who um, is a New York Times bestseller. He's written a number of books, and he wrote a book called David and Goliath. And um, it, through writing that book, brought him back to faith. The, the David and Goliath is in, culturally, is in parlance. It's about overcoming. And, um, and I think that um, we need to hear that afresh, because it seems to me that, that our culture probably most typified, I think, by this part of our city, is against the things of God. And so the people of God, it seems to me, need to know the confidence that is given to us by the, by the blood of the Lamb, what it means to walk in authority, what it means to walk in the ways of the Spirit, what it means to be in covenant with the one that flung, the Psalms say, flung the stars into space. So if you have a Bible and you'd like to turn to uh, 1 Samuel chapter 17. You may have, um, you may have a, I don't know, on your phone or something like that. 
But um, that's fine. It's 1 Samuel Samuel, chapter 17. Quite a long reading. Then I'm going to share a few thoughts. I'll share some testimony to kind of illustrate it if I can. So here we go. David and Goliath. 1 1 Samuel chapter 17. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Socho in Judah. They pitched camp at Darmin between Socho and Azekar. Saul and the Israelites assembled encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley between them. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits in a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and his iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine that you, and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he's able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistines said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight for each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and the other Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Now David was the son of an Ethronite named Jesse, who was from Bethlehem in Judah. Jesse had eight sons, and, and his source time was very old. Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul to the war. The firstborn was Eliab, the second Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three oldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward every morning and evening. And took his stand. Now Jesse said to his son David, Take this ephah of roasted grain and these loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to their camp. Take along these ten cheeses to the commander of their units. See how your brothers are and bring back some assurance from them. They are with Saul and all the men of Israel in the valley of Elah fighting against the Philistines. Early in the morning, David left the flock in the care of a shepherd loaded up and set out as Jesse had directed. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle positions, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines facing each other, and David left his things with the keeper of supplies. He ran to the battle lines and asked his brothers how they were. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance, and David heard it. Whenever the Israelites saw the man, they all fled from him in great fear. Now the Israelites had been saying, do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He'll also give him his daughter in marriage, will exempt his family from taxes in Israel. David asked the man standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine 
and removes this disgrace from Israel. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? They repeated to him what they'd been saying and told him, this is what will be done for the man who kills him. When Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and asked, Why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Now what have I done? said David. Can't I even speak? When he turned away to someone else and brought up the matter... And the men answered him as before. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul, and Saul sent for him. David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servants will go and fight him. Saul replied, you're not able to go and fight against this Philistine and fight him. You're only a young man. And he's been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, I struck it, and I rescued the sheep from its, from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he's defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. And David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I can't go in these, he said to Saul. I am not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took from his staff in his hand, he chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome. And he despised him. He said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day, I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals. And the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's. And he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, 
he slung it and he struck the Philistine on the forehead and the stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a, without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. Amen. The reality for, for many of us, if we're honest, is that we will face giants in our life. We'll face things that have been spoken over us, things that have been done to us. Things from our background, things from upbringing. Stuff that we've done. People. The giants threatening to overshadow and undermine the confidence that God has given us. You see, we are... What is reported to us here in scripture is, is the early part of David's life. We'll know that, that, that God has chosen David from the secret place and that he's anointed him king. Now this, this particular junction in the, the history of the Israelite people, the, the Philistines are threatening their very existence. The Philistines are, are kind of seafaring people from Crete, a, a little bit like Vikings, I suppose. And they've settled along the coast of um, what's Philistia, but they've settled along what is now the Israeli coast. And they've set at home, and they're a smart people. It's often said that, um, that to call somebody a Philistine is a term of, um, of disrespect, that, that somehow um, they're, not, they're uncultured, they're uncouth. But the reality is that the Philistine people were actually fairly smart for their day. Technologically, they were pretty advanced. And they were very good at the, uh, the old spondulis. They were very good with money. And they were very good economically. So by this time, um, they were beginning to see that the Valley of Elah opens up for them incredible opportunity. And it splits Saul's kingdom in two. And so they begin to take ground. And by taking that ground, they are undermining the people of God. And they are undermining Saul. And if they can just split the kingdom in two, they can have access into a whole new area of the land. And because they're incredibly technologically advanced, they are, they are making weapons. They're very good with metals. That the people in the surrounding areas do business with them. In fact, the people of God are threatened not only by their presence militarily, but also the fact that they are forced to do business with them. So they really have got them um, in every single way. They've got them strategically, but also they've got them economically because the people of God, if they want weaponry, need to purchase it from them. And so they are seemingly this unbelievably unstoppable force. And so as they begin to move and advance and be want to take ground, they, they form a battle line and, and they battle in the way that they do in the ancient times. And that is one person steps forward from the army and another person comes forward and they do battle. Somebody of equal and opposite strength. Now Goliath, we know from archaeological digs, was, was a man who existed. It caused much consternation in the, um, 
in the, in the Old Testament world because they found pottery um, with Goliath uh, near Gath. Now, we see it in Scripture, and that's no surprise to us, but for very clever people, it's a surprise. What do you do with this? Well, we found references to this huge man. There's debate. Was he six foot nine? Was he nine foot nine? I thought five foot eight. So either of those, he's pretty huge. But you see, not only is he a huge man, and not only has the scripture tells me fighting from youth, he is wearing the most advanced military armor that you can wear. A bit like Batman, you know, with his Kevlar gear. So not only is he huge, and not only is he this phenomenal warrior, he's wearing all the gear. I mean, he's got it all. The people of God are on the hillside. Fear has gripped them. Saul, their leader, who is tall, the one from whom had the authority to go and defeat him, he's so locked into his own fear that he's unable to, to do anything about this guy. And in walks David. Now David has been tending the sheep. We know that a shepherd in the Old Testament, is actually way more sophisticated and skilled than we give credibility. He would have been a man who had saved and protected his own sheep. David is the shepherd king. Moses was a shepherd. They learn to trust God in the confines and the hostile place of the desert where nobody's looking. We know that God prepares us. And we know that God has been preparing David for this time. He's anointed him king. So Jesse sends him off with cheeses and all that kind of stuff, possibly because it's the culture and custom to go and honor the, the, the leaders of the army, particularly for those who have influence over David's brothers. So that the, the father honoring the soldiers, that they'll look favorably on his, on his sons. Maybe they won't be sent to battle straight away. We don't know, but he takes the best stuff and David appears and he honors his brothers and he honors the, the military because that's the custom of the day. Now David on arrival, he is the customary undermining call of the giants twice a day. Twice a day, the giant comes out and undermines the people of God. Twice a day, for a good period of time, the confidence is draining out their shoes. David, on hearing this, is astounded at the audacity of this man. Notice in the scripture, when David hears the undermining cries of Goliath, his first response is, who is this uncircumcised man? He's outside of the covenant of God. Who is he? Who is he that he should defy the people of God? Who is this abomination to God's people? So David begins a discussion with his brothers. And we notice something interesting. It's his brothers who, on hearing his faith, are so threatened by him, are so undermined by him, that they turn on him 
and say, what, what you done with them sheep, David? What about little Johnny and Timmy? What about all your little sheep? Have you, you know, the subtle, but not so subtle, undermining. They're frightened. He's exposing their fear. And so their response is to, to undermine him. And he says, what, now what have I done? Like a younger brother, you imagine a younger, now what have I done? Can't I speak? And so he speaks to somebody else because he's determined. You see, it's often those closest to us. It's often the, the, it's often the brethren. Not the movements, I don't mean that. But it's often our brothers and sisters who can say the most wounding things. I'm at a denomination, the Church of England, which is generally only known for its ability to wound one another in the media. Whether it be women bishops, gay clergy, whatever it might be. The reality is the church is growing in London. And the church is growing through the Church of England in London. Praise God. But it is the wounding and it's the undermining of others which creates this impression which is picked up by the media. You see, it is the undermining words of his brothers that try to dissuade David in his mission. But he is relentless. And so we know that, um, that, that David is in his, in his youth. And, I, and David, I should imagine, we, we know he's a handsome guy. We know the Bible says he's fine, ruddy and handsome. Some say that, the, that his complexion would be quite um, weathered because he's obviously in, in, a, in a Mediterranean climate. Some say it's because he's ginger. I don't know whether that's true. <laughs> I think it's probably a little weird. But he's certainly been outside because he's been with the sheep. And I imagine he's, um, he's a young man who has the most phenomenal confidence. And I imagine for many, you know, if you met him today, you'd probably take a dislike to him because, because of his, his confidence. And um, because of his questions, because it's so radically countercultural to the, to, to the rest of the, the army, Saul picks, picks up on this. And so um, he goes off to see Saul. And, um, and again, David's, who, who is this guy? Who is this uncircumcised man? This man who's outside of the covenant of God. David has, has, has learnt by experience the very providence and protection of God. So when he stands before the king, he gives testimony. He says, let no one lose heart on account of this man who undermines us. I'll go and, I'll go and take him. Saul sees that he's just a boy. You can't, you know, you can't take him. I mean, he's, in, he's a giant. He's enormous. And he's wearing all the gear. Mate, it's going to go bad. It's really going to go bad. What I love in, is, is, um, is Saul's kind of attempt, Abner. Which I imagine it sounds like he's from Leeds. Abner. Anyway, that's a slightly New Yorkshire joke. I'll press on. But, um, David gives testimony. David testifies that when he was looking after his little sheep, that um, 
which is a significant job because the sheep are worth money, it's a livelihood, as wild animals. It was a dangerous job being a shepherd because um, not only were you, you fending off wild animals, you were fending off robbers. And you were fending off those who would want to steal your sheep. So it's a difficult job. And in the desert place, in the place where nobody's seeing him, not only, not only has he learned to commune with God, the most phenomenal worship, not only has he nurtured his relationship with the Lord, that's why the Lord has seen in him his absolute heart for worship and for God. And not only in that secret place has he worshipped him, not only has he prioritized him, he's learnt to do battle. And this whip of a lad, as they say in Sheffield, has seen the hand of God on him, that when those come near him to try and attack him and try to take the sheep, He's seeing God move. And he gives testimony. And he says to Saul, when, when, I, when, when a lion, which must be terrifying, if I, if I saw a lion coming at me, I don't think I'd wrestle him to the ground, if I'm completely honest with you. I'd probably just run the other way and call the police. But for him, he wrestles. He wrestles. He, he, he opens the jaws of this wild cat and rescues the sheep. So he's like, I'll go. Because testimony, testimony. It says in Re Revelation 12, 11, they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. Now in the Revelation of John, in that writing, it is a courtroom scene. And Satan stands as the accuser of the brethren. He accuses us. And in this courtroom setting, Michael, the archangel giving evidence, defending the people of God, says this. It is the blood of the Lamb, and it is the word of their testimony. So it's a legal, it's legal parlance. Testimony. Testimony. What is it that God has done in your life? Where were you? Who were you before the Lord reached out his arms of grace and embraced you back to the Father? As we see beautifully in the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15. Who were you? What is it that was afflicting you? What was your home life like? What were your finances like? What were the secret things of your life like? What was it that was plaguing you? Were you carrying guilt and shame and longing for life to be different? And then somewhere, sometimes somebody told you about Jesus and you were got invited into a church, this church, and you began to be restored by the power and presence of God. Who were you? And what has God done in your life? What are the victories in your life? What are, what are, what are the, the, the times when it has been incredibly difficult? And somebody has come through for you and God has provided for you in the most remarkable ways. What is your testimony? One thing I admire about the Pentecostal movement is faith. Church of England isn't all, it's known for many things. Faith is not always the thing that we're known for. But that's what I admire. That's why I love connecting with Phil. I think that something happens in the heavenlies. We get together. We pray together. And we're one in spirit.
What is it? What is your testimony? When I, trained to, when I, when I felt called by God to, to the ordained ministry in the Church of England, I, um, I wrestled hugely with it. And um, I, it's a, a very long, bizarre process in the church. I won't go bore you with the details, but um, one of the things you have to do, you have to go off to like a three-day interview, which is a bit like The Apprentice, um, but less cool. And, you know, they interview you and watch how you are at meals and whether you talk to people. And it's a, Actually, it's a bit like Big Brother, a bit weird. Anyway, and, and then I, you, you go off to theological college, to seminary as the Americans call it, it's a theological college. And I went to a college called Wycliffe Hall, which is in Oxford, different city, and it's connected to the university, all that stuff. And um, it was a great time of blessing for my wife and I. We had a fantastic time, met some amazing people. But here's the thing. My background um, means that I wouldn't necessarily feel most comfortable in that world. But that's where God had called me. I was confident that's where God had called me. And... Um, I began to do some courses there. I began to learn New Testament Greek and um, started out the front row. And as the weeks went by, I progressively worked my way towards the back of the class because uh, it reminded me of GCSE French, which for me was not a positive experience. Uh, my, my French is as good as Del Boys, if any of you uh, watch Only Fools and Horses. Uh, may we, may we. So, um, so, um, it was a weird combination because um, all of a sudden you, you're in a classroom environment with people who were, who were much smarter than me. And I, I'm not just being humble about it, they were. A lot of them had been to uh, Oxford and Cambridge as undergraduates. A lot of them had had very respectable jobs, uh, successful. And, um, and, I, and I felt quite stupid, if I'm really honest with you. And um, I began to go and see my, one of my tutors and said, Look, I don't know what's going on. This Greek, it's like another language. And he said, well, that's it is. That's where you're going wrong. You need to learn it. And um, I just couldn't. I, I would break out into a sweat. And the test, I would, I, would, I would sit next to my friend and try and copy them. It was like being back at school. And um, two, things that, two, uh, two things that began to undermine me. One was that um, I thought, well, you need to be really smart to be a vicar. And I'm struggling to... Uh, learn even the alphabet sitting there my good news bible culling in the pictures and um i discovered at that point that i was that i am dyslexic which means that you know right right part of the brain and the left part of the brain don't always connect which means reading is um can be a challenge particularly when i'm tired and it also means if you ever get an email from me you'll find that words are missing now in my head they're there but but they're not i don't know where they go they just go off somewhere in my feet, perhaps, I don't know. But I write them out, they're not there. So that got diagnosed, which was helpful because it explained a lot of stuff at school. But also was unhelpful because, one, it's a label. And secondly, I just thought, well, Lord, I really think I've got this wrong because these guys are all so smart and I feel a bit stupid. The other thing was I had an incredible fear about speaking in public. And possibly because I knew that I'd have to speak. And I felt incredibly fearful of this. And we would... Um, have classes where you'd write a sermon and you'd stand there in front of six people and then after the talk, they'd all give you a little bit of feedback, in inverted commas, uh, which was supposed to be done in love. Depends on your definition of love. <laughs> Didn't feel like that. So um, to cut a long story short, I was convinced that the God had got it wrong and um, 
I went to see a very good friend of mine at the time who was working in the city. A man of the spirit, a very godly man. And I shared my heart with him and he said, um, I said, I just feel so weak. I just don't feel I can do this. I think I've got it wrong. And he said, fantastic. Brilliant. He says, because my power is made perfect in weakness. He says, remember your testimony. Revelation 12, 11. So what would happen is, before every time I'd speak, in front of very smart people who knew Hebrew and Greek, and there I was, my good news Bible, remember your testimony. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, word of their testimony. Take another step forward. Remember your testimony. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, the word of their testimony. Take another step forward. Oh, the giant of life. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, the word of their testimony. If you'd, now, if you'd spoken to me those years ago and said, do you know, one day you're going to be a vicar in Cambridge, I'd have been like, you're joking. I'm off to Hull, mate. <laughs> the land of glory. Oh, I've got time for all these middle class people down. Oh, forget it. So the Lord... The Lord called us here. It's Cambridge. And there I am, standing in front of people who work in the university, and some of them teach Greek. So I never say, now the Greek word here, because they generally know what it means. Um, so I just, I just don't bother with all that. The Lord set me free of it. And I say, take another step forward. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. You see, he's taken on himself our sin and our shame. And he gives us new life, faith, confidence that can only come from him. So David stands in front of Saul. Saul tries to put his own armor on him. He takes it off. I can't, I can't go in these. I can't, I can't walk like this. I can't walk like this. The mark of confidence is being yourself, walking in who you are. And he picks out those familiar things of a slinger. And we know that in an army, the slingers are powerful. And so Goliath comes forward and he's shouting. He's got this, all his gear on and his shield bearer's gone before. And, and some have said that because he was so big, it's likely that he, that he had something medically wrong in his brain so he might not have seen so well but he sees David with his staff and he says am I a dog and David says today I'll hand you over today you're mine and he comes against him not his own strength but the strength of God who's with him he takes that sling and defeats him the giant defeats the giant he stands, he stands on testimony. He stands on testimony. Now, what does that mean for us? What does it mean for you? What does it mean for you today? What are those giants? Maybe the ones that you haven't spoken to others about, but they're threatening to undermine and overshadow you. What about you today? What about your testimony? 
Now, it seems to me that the, um, the Lord wants us wise, not clever. He wants us wise. He wants us to embrace our weakness so that he can be truly strong. And he wants the church in this city to rise up. To rise up. To do what you're doing. It's remarkable. To take the ground that God's given you. So Paul writes to the church in Corinth. He says, my grace is sufficient for you. Thank you for listening and we trust that the word of God has inspired you today. For further information about King's Church or to access our large archive of other recordings, go to www.kingscambridge.org. If you're listening on iTunes, we would love you to leave us some feedback. God bless and goodbye.